thought created reality and sense based reality. And I want to start with a reading that a friend of mine gave me a few days ago. And it's by a woman named Kim Boykin. And she talks about how she spent a summer at a cabin in Grand Lake, Colorado, on the edge of the Rocky Mountain National Park, and that the uh, park rangers had a pamphlet on living in bear country and suggestions on what to do if you meet a bear. And she thought that these sounded like really good meditation instructions. So I'm going to read to you meditation hints from the Colorado Division of Wildlife. And she substituted thought for bear. (laughs) Colorado has been home to thoughts since their earliest ancestors evolved in North America. Today, increasing number of people live, routinely live and play in thought country. <laughs> Learning about thoughts and being aware of their habits will help you fully appreciate these unique animals and the habitat in which they live. What to do if you meet a thought. <laughs> there are no definite rules about what to do if you meet a thought. Thought attacks are rare compared to the number of close encounters. <laughs> However, if you do meet a thought before it has time to leave an area, here are some suggestions. Remember, every situation is different with respect to thought, terrain, the people, and their activity. First of all, stay calm. If you see a thought and it hasn't seen you, calmly leave the area. (laughs) Stop. Back away slowly while facing the thought. Give the thought plenty of room to escape. (laughs) Wild thoughts rarely attack people unless they feel threatened or provoked. (laughs) Speak softly. This may reassure the thought that no harm is meant to it. (laughs) If a thought stands upright or moves closer, it may be trying to detect smells in the air. This isn't a sign of aggression. Once a thought identifies you, it may leave the area or try to intimidate you by charging to within a few feet before it withdraws. Don't run or make any sudden movements. Running is likely to prompt the thought to give chase, and you can't outrun a thought. If you have a potentially life-threatening situation with thought... I did pretty well. I made it through all the whole thing. (laughs) If you have a potentially life-threatening situation with a thought, please contact the Division of Wildlife. (laughs) Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 (laughs) p.m. Or if it's after hours, you can pick up the red phone. We do have to learn how to get along with thoughts as um, this wildlife approaches uh, our terrain quite often. It's actually very frequent. (laughs) But basically, if you leave thoughts alone, they'll leave you alone. Just like bears. Just like the bear I saw in my yard on Tuesday afternoon, sitting on its haunches underneath the feeder, looking wistfully or perhaps greedily at the feeder. I left it alone. It left me alone. 
if you start to get involved with them, then problems happen, right? It's like Michelle said with the land, that we leave it alone. Maybe it's helpful to see thoughts as wild animals that we treat with respect and basically leave alone, give them lots of space. Now, if they start to get aggressive, it could be a good idea to do something. Like the bear started to get into the compost. (laughs) Then it was time to take some measures. I yelled at it and uh, it took off. So if a thought starts to get aggressive, then maybe it's time to do something, to take some actions to perhaps protect yourself or take care of the situation. So if a thought's particularly strong and and uh, looking like it wants to attack, you know what I mean, those kinds of thoughts, then maybe you um, go back to your anchor. Or one thing that I do sometimes with particularly troublesome thoughts that come back a lot, I say, hmm, this is a story, I tell myself. It helps uh, with not identifying or getting so involved with the thought. Or some thoughts I might say, Thanks for sharing. It's like acknowledging the thought, but again, not getting involved or um, overly uh, identified with it. Or sometimes we just use a note. Oh, thinking. Thinking's happening. That puts some space around it, like we give the bear space, we give the thought space. Oh, thinking. Thinking's happening. Sometimes thoughts come as big storms, whirlwinds, tornadoes, right? This is like the bear when it's strewing compost everywhere. A little bit wild. Several people today mentioned these storms of self-criticism, the inner bully or the inner critic that um, has such harsh thoughts and such a sense of worthlessness or imperfection or not being good enough, or self-doubt, or just the idea that things should be different than what's happening in my practice, that we don't measure up. And sometimes when these storms come through, it's, it's like we're out at sea on a ship without an anchor, and we're hanging on to the mast, just waiting for the storm to pass. And they do pass. That's good to remember. We can notice this. We can notice how these storms come and and they do pass. That also can help us not to take them too seriously. So in meditation we're trying to understand uh, the difference between these thought-created realities that we fabricate over and over again. And the difference between that and what we could call a sense-based or sensuous reality. You may have noticed that we live primarily in thought-created reality. The thought-created reality is really our best guess about what is happening. So the mind, it takes input and it comes up with a story about the way things are. So in the case of the inner critic, perhaps something goes on in our meditation that um, we don't like. 
And then the inner critic and the mind makes up this whole story about how worthless we are and how we're such bad meditators. Thought-created reality makes up many, many stories on little information. It likes... um, The brain is lazy, basically, and it likes to devise all kinds of shortcuts to make sense out of reality. So it goes with assumptions and best guesses and quick decisions. The brain basically would rather make a quick judgment than um, a reasoned-out assessment because it's easier. So we also, then there's all the power of past conditioning, I read somewhere recently, your mind is what it's been pickled in. (laughs) That's the past conditioning, right? So there's all the past conditioning that then um, tells us what the story, or makes up a story about what is happening. And with these stories, um, there's a high priority on creating a sense of security and knowing, control. That's a top priority for thought-created reality. So thought-created reality is an approximation of the way things are, but we come to take it as um, truth. It's like Michelle's story last night about her neighbor and how um, she came up with this whole story about her neighbor on pretty scant information that she bounced as she, as she jogged, right? And then there was this whole story about what a life she had and how it was something that she would want, that Michelle would want. There was one um, student I had in the three-month course. She uh, was angry at somebody, and so she made, you know, there was this whole story she had about what this person did, why they did it, what was wrong with it, them. And, and she you know, went on, it was a storm. And then at the end she said, I had this thought. I made that all up. Brilliant, great. We can see this. We make up so many things so often. If you really want to see thought-created reality at work, Uh, Your next eating meditation instruction will be to watch the thoughts, the thought-created reality, the reality that you create with your thoughts waiting in line for lunch and while you take the food. Absolutely fascinating. I often tell the story of one time when I was in line here and it was a three-month retreat. There were 100 yogis, a number of staff people. There were 120 people at least eating lunch. I was fourth in line. And the thoughts were, there isn't going to be enough for me. <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of information <laughs> to back that up, but my mind made it up. Past conditioning situation came together. There was another time on retreat where I saw a note on the board um, that my ex-partner had written to another woman. And it was a woman I was quite sure he was interested in. And I created this whole reality from that note about my, how unworthy I was, unlovable I was, how I was going to be alone all my life. Whole uh, reality created. I spent a week working with this, right? Right? 
And then when I talked to him after the retreat, he said he hadn't written any notes. I'd made it all up for a whole week over seeing some handwriting on the wall, on the note that I assumed was his. I was sure it was his. I was sure I was unlovable. I was sure that meant that I was going to spend the rest of my life alone. These are thought-created worlds. So we call that, in Buddhism, we call that identifying with thought when we get lost in it and believe it and um, live in this reality that we make up. And it's pretty chaotic, you've probably noticed. When we get lost in these thought-created worlds, we feel imprisoned by our own thoughts. No one ever teaches us that maybe we don't have to believe our thoughts. I think they should teach this in kindergarten, right, right, out, right, out, right in the beginning of schooling. <laughs> Mostly we go to school and we're taught that thinking is the only thing we can trust. Really, schools schools about teaching us to live in thought-created reality. And you can see this these days, that when like they make cuts in schools, budgets, what's the first thing that goes? Art and physical education. The two things that actually point towards a sense-based reality. So no wonder it's hard for us to understand what we mean when we talk in meditation about really getting in touch or connecting with our senses, connecting with the world through our senses and trusting that as a way to connect with truth. We've been taught all along that the way you connect with truth is you think it out in your mind and you believe your mind and that your mind is somewhat trustworthy. So we've been trained for years in um, thought-created reality. I mean, it's also our conditioning as humans. It's not just schools, but schools certainly encourage it. So most of us in modern societies have forgotten, again, that there's another way to experience reality, which is closer to... and more in touch with the truth of things. And this is what I call sense-based or sensuous reality. So sensuous reality is this connection to life through our direct sense experience. So we reclaim a direct connection to life through hearing and smelling, sensing in the body, tasting, seeing, and directly experiencing the heart-mind. So the six senses. So sensuous reality right now might include the feeling of heaviness or pressure in the buttocks as we're sitting, or the vibration at the ear door from the sound waves of my voice, the seeing of form and color and light, the feeling of the slight heaviness of the air on the cheek, the smell of the flowers on the altar, or maybe uh, the smell of washed cotton. Or when the breeze comes in the window, the breeze on the cheeks. 
it would also sense-based reality or sensuous reality would also include the feeling of relaxation in the body if you feel resonance with what I'm saying. A kind of lightness in the mind as you go, yeah, that makes sense to me. Or it might include a sense of irritation if you don't connect with what I'm saying, if it doesn't make sense to you. And there's a sense of agitation in the mind and the heart and contraction in the body. You can feel it as contraction in the body. It's a direct connection with irritation. So it includes emotions too, this sense-based reality, but emotions that will encourage you to feel viscerally in the body. Thought stories of emotions are often some kind of protection from actually feeling them. Like stories of anger. It's actually, um, the stories are the distraction from the actual feeling of anger. So what we're talking about is, um, I would say we're not talking about so much about waking up as waking down. As Michelle was saying, um, coming down from living in the thought-created worlds that that the energy is very much up here and coming down into our embodied presence on this planet through our sense experience, through receiving life, uh, through this sensitive being we call our body, our senses. So dropping into sensuous reality, we're more in touch with the way things are. And what we see when we drop into the reality of the senses is constant change. So for example, if we have the thought of our knee living in um, conceptual reality, thought-created reality, the idea of our knee, it fe- and, and, and perhaps a pain in our knee, it seems kind of solid and kind of enduring. It's, it, it's, it's somewhat... Um, Concepts kind of freeze reality, make it more solid. But if we, if we really connect with the feeling in the knee, the experience, the sensual experience, what we may feel is swirling and pulsing and moving and sensation waxing and waning. Change, constant change. Connecting with sensual or sensuous reality directly, we see that we live in this world of constant change. This is the truth of things. We see the truth of things. So we may have some ambivalence about the openness of this intimate connection with all that that with all of life that we're talking about. There was a question in the hall yesterday about when we open the heart and, and, this, and this connection with the sensuous reality it opens our systems. We're, we're allowing um, life to be received at this body. So there's a certain openness that happens. And the question was, how do we feel protected? So we have some ambivalence. That's another reason why it's not so easy. That's another reason why we like to go to our thought-created reality. 
because sensuous reality includes, includes amazing colors of sunset and the trill of the thrush's song, but it also includes the outrage of the black fly bite and the um, uh, aching of the joints. It includes the smell of the lilies and the smell of the sewage. It includes everything. I was thinking about that slight outrage we might feel when a black fly bites us. I do. I have this moment of, of affront, of outrage. It's like it's an affront to our thought-based reality when, when, when a black fly bites us because the thought kind of is, this is my body and how dare you. Thought-created thought reality is all about separation and independence. But to the black fly... Our arm, our neck is dinner served on a plate. <laughs> and that version, the black fly version, is closer to the truth of things, the interconnectedness of things. Thought based reality believes in separation and independence. Sensuous reality, we see the interconnectedness and the embeddedness of all of life, or our, even what we call our life in this world. I have to read a story. It doesn't entirely fit, I'm going to admit it right now. But it's a story I just love, and to me it, it, it kind of, um, it has the feeling for, for me of this thought-created reality carried to an extreme, and how, and how that kind of way of seeing the world works. And it's, and I, I don't get many chances to read it, but I think I can make it fit here. So it's by um, somebody named E.M. Forrester, and it's an essay called My Wood. It makes me feel it ought to be larger. The other day I heard a twig snap in it, in his wood. I was annoyed at first, for I thought that somebody was blackberrying and depreciating the value of the undergrowth. On coming near, I saw it was not a man who had trodden on the twig and snapped it, but a bird, and I felt pleased. My bird. The bird was not equally pleased. Ignoring the relationship between us, it took flight as soon as it saw the shape of my face and flew straight over the boundary hedge into a field, the property of Mrs. Hennessy, where it sat down with a loud squawk. It had become Mrs. Hennessy's bird. Something seemed grossly amiss here, something that would not have occurred had the wood been larger. I could not afford to buy Mrs. Hennessy out. I dared not murder her, and the limitations of this sort beset me on every side. Now that I was, now, nor was I comforted, comforted when Mrs. Hennessy's bird took alarm for the second time and flew clean away from us all under the belief that it belonged to itself. Thought-based reality creates many stories, and um, the the shining character is ourselves and what is ours, and how to manage it and keep it and make it be the way that we want it to be. So we drop into this uh, sensuous reality with a sense of patience. It's not something that we can command. We can orient ourselves towards our sense experience. Yes, there's that much doing. But then it's more um, a matter of allowing or receiving. 
It's a kind of softening into life. If there's too much aggressiveness in our approach, um, it will skitter off like a wild animal. If we're patient and calm, then we make this connection with our sense experience. Like the fox I stared at by the side of the road on Wednesday in the field as I was biking. I stopped and we looked at each other for a while. So we have these moments, these moments slowly accumulating of of contact with our sense experience, with hearing, with pressure, with taste, smelling, seeing, feeling in the body. Sensuous reality reveals that um, we live in this wild, wild world. This world of constant change that cannot be perfectly managed, that resists our attempts at control. It's not such a neat world. It's a bit messy. It reminds me of the Zen story where the, the novice is um, set to cleaning the garden and he, and he rakes and he um, picks things up and he uh, takes really good care of the garden, makes it really neat just so it looks perfect, just right, everything in place. And he calls the master and he says, look, okay, I did it. I did the job here. What do you think? And the master looks at it and he says, hmm, it's pretty good, but not quite And he takes a tree and he shakes it and he shakes leaves and nuts and twigs all over the garden. And then he says, now it looks good. Now it looks right. Because that's what life is like. We want, somehow we want our life to be this perfectly manicured Zen garden. But it's not like that, is it? It's messy. There's twigs and and leaves and, and nuts strewn all over the place. Why would we want to drop into this sense-based reality when we can live in the security of our thought-based world? Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to open the windows in the meditation hall when we can have a nice climate-controlled enclosed space? We have to acknowledge that there are, way, there are ways that we love and like and um, are very attached to our thought-created, our thought-based cocoon. We like um, the illusion that it gives us that we can control life. It reminds me of one time when I was on retreat in, in Washington State and I was up on a hill and I was... Um, meditating and minding my own business, <laughs> when I heard this sound in the distance. I was like, what is that sound? I'm like, oh, it's a cow. Fantastic, I love cows. And I felt pretty good about it. And then I heard, and I was, maybe it's not a cow. Maybe it's a chainsaw. I don't like chainsaws. They're cutting down the forest. And then my mind was just determined to know which one it was. 
It wanted control and, and a sense of knowing and security, knowing what kind of reality <laughs> there was and, and how I was going to feel about it and how I was going to orient to it, how I was going to manage it somehow. But I didn't know. But we like that safety. We like that security of knowing. Or perhaps we like the pleasantness of getting lost in a fantasy. We, we, we need to acknowledge this. Right? There's some pleasantness there when we have a great story going on, a fantastic story. So why would we want to do this? Why would we come here and... Uh, Cultivate the ability to drop into sense-based reality. Why are you here? What called you here? Usually there's some calling. There's some... You don't land here for 13 days by accident. You might land here for a weekend by accident. That might happen. But not 13 days. What called you here? Something called you. Sometimes it's a sense of dissatisfaction or a feeling that something is missing. Or perhaps we see very clearly that our thought-based reality is giving us lots of trouble, that it's not working so well for us. Or perhaps if we look deeply, we feel the dissatisfaction of the dependence on thought-based reality. And that that gives us this courage to drop into sensuous reality or the willingness. Or we may feel like the rootlessness of living in thought-creative reality. It's like I was talking about it in a group today. It's like the feeling I get sometimes when I watch a movie, uh, especially in a movie theater. It doesn't happen at home quite the same, but I'll watch a movie and I'm totally engrossed in the story, right? And then the movie's over and there's this weird sensation um, for a little while afterwards. It feels rootless, like... like, um, Like I've forgotten who I am. I mean, sometimes that's the purpose of watching a movie, right? And like, I like to watch a movie like anybody. But there's, I don't like that feeling sometimes afterwards of um, disorientation or something like that. And in some ways, it's like being lost in the movies of our mind. It's it's something similar. It's, it's It's this disconnect. And that there's something unsatisfying and alienating about that. Hmm. Maybe I will read this one. This is from Kestrel, um, a teen retreat participant. And she talks about herself as a teen, but maybe we can relate to it, all of us, even us older folks. I can truthfully say that this teen retreat at IMS was a life-changing experience for me. 
It happened so gradually, so gently, that I didn't notice it happening. But now I see that it's a change so deep that I can't even imagine what I was like before. Now I realize that one of the specific changes that I feel has happened to me, and perhaps to others who attended the retreat as well, so many of us are like rootless trees. Begging for nutrients, we wander over the land, branches upstretched, searching for the sun. The wind Winds blow strong and some of us fall. Others manage to stand, branches shaking, all those new green leaves ripped away in handfuls. Some attempt to hold their branches stiff against the winds. Those break off. And the worst part of it is the fact that we don't know what it is that we're missing. I was one of those rootless trees. I thought it was an inextricable part of my identity. On the teen retreat, with the strong but gentle guidance provided by the teachers and volunteers, all that was changed. The retreat helped me find my roots. I feel them here now, holding me steady and feeding me life. And the funny thing is that I know now they've always been there, waiting to grow. This is what um, we get from learning to land in sense-based reality, we get roots, groundedness, a sense of being actually present on this planet, alive on this planet where we've taken birth. Now, of course, um, we can't make thoughts the enemy. It can't be like, oh, now I'm never going to think again because that's so bad and um, so unsatisfying. No, thoughts are useful sometimes. They're a part of human life. When it's helpful to think, we think. And, and when thought stories are not so helpful, we gain um, a greater and greater ability to let them go. We get more choice over how we relate to them. And we definitely learn not to be overly confident in thought's ability to interpret reality. So we hold them more lightly. And just giving them space, like giving the wild bear space, just giving thought space, then there's room for connecting with sense reality. We don't have to try to get rid of them or bash them or... Zigar Kontru Rinpoche, I probably said his name wrong, but I tried. He says, like an old man watching children at play, we need to see through our own seriousness. No matter how seriously the children go about their games, the old man is amused and never for a moment takes them to be real. We can watch our own thoughts and emotions in the same way. Without taking them so seriously, we can see them as children at play and give them lots of space. The truth is sometimes we need thought vacations. I call them thought vacations. They give us a a break from the intensity of reality. Right? You're here in the meditation hall and you're tired of that pain in your back, right? So you have a little thought vacation. You go off somewhere and think about something and hang out for a while. We all need thought vacations. 
So please don't make um, them bad. Please don't be hard on yourself. We can appreciate them, sometimes even appreciate them. Oh, a thought vacation, thank you. Thank you for giving me a little break. But then we can also celebrate those moments when we wake up. Each time we wake up out of a thought story, we're conditioning presence. And notice and watch how you wake up out of these thought stories. Like, what, what's the experience? Often it's you wake up, say, oh, I've been gone so long. Oh, I'm a bad meditator. And then we go back to the, to the breath, right? Like some sequence <laughs> like that. It's not so helpful. It's a little discouraging. See if you can switch it up a little bit. So you wake up out of a thought story. Presence, appreciate presence. Relax the body and come back to your anchor. Just try that out as an alternative if you find that that often you're waking up and you're judging yourself for having been lost in a story. We don't always start out our spiritual path with this deep wish to be embodied in this world. As I said, we have some serious ambivalence here. We often start out with the hope that we're going to transcend, actually, this nitty-gritty connection to life, to this world, to being human. We're going to take a little related uh, detour here into the Buddha's own journey. In the story of the Buddha's awakening, it said that um, uh, in his late 20s, I believe he was 29, he got dissatisfied, you could say. He felt a calling. He was dissatisfied. And... um, So he went out on his journey to see how he could answer the deeper questions of life. Why do we suffer? How can we not suffer? And um, he tried two paths before he found something that kind of worked. And we often mention those paths, but we just kind of skip right over them. But I'm really curious about exploring those in a little more detail. And so the the first path that he tried is um, fixed concentration like Michelle was talking about last night. And so he, um, he tried uh, this way of really getting concentrated and getting blissed out and pretty much um, disconnecting from sense-based reality completely and living in a created reality of, of, of a, an absorbed um, kind of concentrated state. So we can read this this history that I'm saying, we can read it as an account of the Buddha's life, but we can also think of it as an account of the spiritual journey in general. So often our first wish is like, how can I get out of here? <laughs> and um, that's what the Buddha was trying to do. He was trying to escape. He thought that might be the way to do it, to get out of here. But he wasn't satisfied. He did, He did this perfectly. And he wasn't satisfied. He was like, wow, this feels really great when I'm meditating, but when I'm not meditating, I still have the same problems. Life still 
has a lot of suffering. So he thought, okay, that's not working. I'm going to try something else. Then he went on a path of self-mortification, of really extreme asceticism. So he really tried to subjugate the body. That was the next thing, subjugate and control. So he ate almost nothing. You could say he was anorexic for that matter. He um, uh, engaged in lots of um, austerities, like um, not lying down to sleep, uh, other things. I can't remember what they all were, but they were all about subjugating and controlling the body and the mind. So if we can't bliss out, then we think, well, maybe I can get rid of somehow the parts of life that I don't like, or I can repress them, or I can control them. Anything that's unacceptable, maybe I can somehow make it go away, or make it, uh, get it under my control. So it was a lot of control, huge amount of control in, his, in these two paths that he took. And we don't maybe do self-mortification in the same sense that he does, or not all of us anyway, but we have our own way of kind of doing it. It's a, it's a kind of um, the, 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 the self-hatred that many of us engage in, or that we find come up a lot, that has that, that edge to it, that, um, wow, I'm just going to get rid of all these parts of myself I don't like. And this energy, so this energy of his search, it was, it was warped. There was too much willpower, too much aggression. And at a certain point, the Buddha said, oh, this doesn't work either. He was exhausted, for one. And it wasn't leading to the freedom that he wanted. So he... Um, seemed to really be split be, within himself between, between trying to transcend and trying to control and subjugate and believing that his freedom lied somewhere outside of his ordinary human experience. And things really turned around for him when he decided to soften. This is interesting for us to contemplate. He remembered a time when he was a child sitting under a rose apple tree and um, it was during some hard, uh, planting, spring planting um, festival. It was this time of year. And he remembered some state of relaxed openness, of wholehearted presence. And he thought, oh, maybe this is the way to go. And then he took nourishment. He nourished himself. He took nourishment from a milkmaid. He ate some rice pudding, it said. So he opened to this softer energy. One teacher in Western Mass named Jan Fraser says, we learn to present a yielding surface rather than an impenetrable shield. So he turned in his impenetrable shield for a yielding surface. He still had strong determination, but it was balanced with kindness. His guy friends thought he was wussing out. They, they were mad at him. They, they left him. Later they came around when he, um, after he became enlightened and went back and told them what he had learned. And on the night of his enlightenment, when he went through um, 
what you can what we can describe what he went through is as a healing journey. It said that the armies of Mara were throwing this and that at him, and um, uh, you could say that armies of Mara were all the parts of life that um, that he hadn't been able to let in, and that finally he faced. This is not the normal interpretation, by the way, of the Buddhist life, or not the way I've heard most people talk about it. I think of that night as um, as him integrating his full humanity. So it said first he met um, Mara with all um, all the forms of aggression, anger, and violence, and fear, and discomfort, and thirst, and hunger, and doubt, and longing for um, fame, and restlessness, and that along with this came mud, and rain, and rocks, and sand, and darkness, and Ooh, all these earthy elements. I was in the early part of the night, and he was able to to be with that. And then, interestingly, the next um, line of attack from Mara. Mara is kind of like the Buddhist devil, not exactly, but the personification of delusion and greed, anger. The next way he attacked him is he questioned his worthiness. So like the Buddha had self-esteem issues all the way up to the end, you could say. Mara said, like, what right do you have to be here? What right do you have? And the Buddha touched the ground. He didn't point to the sky. He touched the ground. I see this touching the earth as a sign of groundedness, of, you could say, sense-based reality. And then there were other stuff that came in him too, lots of stuff, but I think of this as a journey of um, becoming an integrated human being, becoming fully human. Can we become fully human? So our journey, our journey, each moment offers us this chance to awaken to our humanity. To touch our humanity through senses, through our sense-based reality. (coughs) To awaken out of the dream worlds of thought. These awakenings out of the dream worlds of thought offer us the gift of connecting directly with our sense experience, and that offers us the opportunity to let life teach us the way things are. Thought-based reality can't do that because it makes everything up, as I said earlier. It's too separate, not close enough to the truth. The things that can teach us are the swirling knee pain and the symphony of changing sounds and the rising and passing away of anger as a felt experience and continuous change at all the sense doors. These can teach us about the way things are. And this can teach us how to live in harmony and at peace with the way things are. 
We also see that this ability to wake down into sensuous reality is connected to the opening of the heart and the development of metta and compassion. There's a well-known quote by um, Albert Einstein that perhaps we can hear in this um, sense of, of moving from thought-based uh, reality, our reliance on thought-based reality into sensuous reality and how that affects the heart. He says, A human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He or she experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So with this waking down, we touch the world and we let ourselves be touched by the world. We acknowledge our embeddedness and our interrelationship with all that is alive. And from this connection emerges empathy, metta, compassion. So through this connection with sense-based reality, we drop into our true homes of both wisdom and compassion. I want to end with a little uh, quote from Pema Chodron. She says, We develop an unshakable bond with life. We accept that we are bound to reality, bound to everything we perceive in every moment. There is no way to get away from our experience, so we surrender to life. When you have this kind of genuine connection with yourself and the world, you may begin to encounter wakefulness. You suddenly feel as if you're in a vast, wide-open space with unlimited breathing room. It's as if you've stepped out of a small, dark, stuffy tent and found yourself standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon. It's not an otherworldly, ethereal place. You haven't transcended the ordinary details of your life. Quite the opposite. You've finally contacted them 100%, and they've become a doorway to what we call the sacred world. Sacred in the sense of precious, rare, fleeting, and fundamentally good. Let's sit for a minute.
I um, mentioned windows in my talk. Uh, you may have noticed that we've opened the windows, and um, the request is that you uh, leave them, and we'll take care of them. We'll talk more in the morning about that. And now we have about uh, 35 minutes for walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.